Kia ora, I'm Maria. I'm Māori and Pākehā. And I'm Kate, and I'm Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a biracial person. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Bunurong and Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And we want to offer our respect to the elders of these lands, past, present and those yet to come. And acknowledge traditional owners from the lands where this podcast is reaching you. Today we are going to be chatting to Abby Sullivan about being biracial. Abby is a public servant, a lawyer, an educator. She's lived in Japan, um, lived and worked in Japan for a long time. And on the weekends and evenings, she is a salsa dancer. And we are so excited to have her in the studio today. Thank you for coming in, Abby. Thanks, guys, for having me. It's really exciting and also kind of weird. It's my first ever podcast. Oh, you feel blessed. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it is an honour to be your first podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so we always kick off by asking, what's your mix? What is my mix? So I was born in South Africa and um, I am coloured South African. So in South Africa, there's whites, coloureds, blacks, um, traditionally, and I fit into that coloured mix because there is a mix of white heritage and non-white heritage, black heritage in my family. And actually when you guys said, oh, do you want to do on this podcast? I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. And then this week I was like, oh, am I biracial? I'm like, can I come on this podcast? So what's the definition? Don't look it up. But I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll come on anyway because I think there's things that I can chat about because there is, you know, different mixes of heritages and understanding. Yeah, I think to be honest – uh, we have a pretty fa- like fast and loose definition of being biracial and like even the term biracial is something that has only kind of really come into my consciousness more recently. Yeah. It's like not a word that I grew up knowing about at all and I think I've always kind of just described myself as like vaguely ethnic. Yeah, okay. Well, it's interesting though because like for me, my parents because – you know, they were raised in apartheid and they were like, they didn't want to raise children in apartheid. They refused. So I feel like when my mum and dad met and were getting married, my dad sort of said, if we have kids, I don't want to raise them here. We're going to go somewhere else, um, which is pretty huge. So when we came to Australia, they were always like, you're Australian, 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 Australian. Like we didn't learn Afrikaans. I don't speak Afrikaans. I can understand a little bit. And, you know, my parents used to speak Afrikaans when they wanted to tell secrets. Yes, classic. And, you know, we were always trying to listen and be like, are we going to McDonald's coming home? No. Oh, damn it. You know, that's We've got food at home. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we've got food at home. Exactly. That was a very common theme. Um, so in terms of my heritage and my, you know, coloured South African heritage, I really don't know much about it in many ways because I've really just navigated this white space, Australian space, my whole life. And, yes, I've got cousins and things like that, but 
yeah, really just been sitting in this space. So only when I have these sorts of conversations or people ask me these questions, then I stop and think, oh, actually, who am I? Where do I fit? How does that work? And in a weird way, in the intro, you said I um, lived in Japan for a while. I know more about Japan and Japanese heritage and Japanese language than I do of the country of my birth. This is so mapping onto my experience because I lived and worked in China for a long time and I speak Mandarin. And in so many ways, I know so much more about China than I do about Iran. Yeah. And that's, that's so weird. And like for sure my interest in learning about another country and living somewhere else like is intrinsically linked to the fact that I'm mixed race and that my parents met overseas and lived overseas and all of that kind of thing. But it's really weird. Yeah, it's so strange. And like as I'm getting older and we're doing, I'm doing all this reflection and trying to understand who you are in the world now and how you came to be, I completely understand my parents' decision-making and the path that they took and the reasons why because they were complete, they are completely valid um, and they really make sense. But I'm kind of thinking, oh, in this pursuit of success in a white supremacist world, in a white world, I'm a huge success, right? You've been educated, you've become a lawyer, you've done, you've set the pathway, you've gone up that sort of escalator, Maybe you took a few detours along the way. You've worked overseas. But on the other hand, what have you sacrificed? That community, that connection that you still have, but you've put that all at arm's length for the benefit or for um, the capacity and ability to achieve by white standards what you're set to achieve, but you're still not quite there yet and you're not sure if you're ever going to get there. So this is obviously lots of things that have been going through my mind. And so I'm finding that kind of an interesting journey of understanding of being part of an Australian culture, but very obviously not looking like a white Australian, but then also being successful as an immigrant. How do your parents feel about your success? Really proud. Everybody knows I'm a lawyer and I'm like, yeah, but I'm not practicing right now. But you got the piece of paper though. 100% got that piece of paper. And I, well, it's quite funny. Um, and so when I went to university, I did an arts degree for my undergrad and I majored in Japanese and psychology. And um, I didn't feel really connected to my degree. And I felt like I just did it to tick a box because it wasn't really, didn't know what I wanted to do. I had an idea that I wanted to be a lawyer, but I thought, what the hell do I know about life? or anything or anyone to be able to sit in this position of power with or actually over people in many, many respects and tell them how to run their lives or how the laws impact on their lives when I actually haven't got life experience. I don't know anything about the world. So for my first degree, I didn't go to the ceremony. I just got, I did it in absentia and I just got it sent to um, the house. And um, my parents, like it came, like, you know, they never get like those rolled um, piped kind of packaging and they were like what's this and I was like oh it's my degree and they were like what they were furious they were so so angry like I'd never seen them that angry at me before and at the time I didn't understand at all because I'd really taken something away from them that they wanted to be proud of but I also had to try and explain to them I'm like but I'm not necessarily proud because I didn't feel this strong connection to 
the degree I did or the interest because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with it. So that was a really weird sort of experience. But now I understand why. And so I was like, look, I'll, I'll study something again. I don't know where yet when it's going to be or what it's going to be. You can come to the next one. I promise. I promise you can come to the next one. Yeah, and then so when I did the law degree, they came to the ceremony. My grandmother came to the ceremony. They came to the admissions. They went to the Supreme Court. They got the whole shebang. I I did a similar thing. I I did. I have a marketing degree, a commerce degree. Like, are you kidding? Um, I realized about three quarters of the way through. A, I failed a bunch, like a bunch. I was, like the first person that we knew of in my family that went to uni. Um, I also did pretty average to bad at school. I don't know why I went to uni, but um, I went there, failed a lot, really out of pure stubbornness, completed the degree, took five years. At the end of it, I was like, all right, we're going to have a party. Like, let's have a party, have a fun time. Um, and so my mum and a couple of my my parents, like my f- friends from school, their parents came up. And I didn't invite my dad. Um, and one of my cousins, like, commented on it, my Facebook <laughs> posts like my Facebook pictures she was like where's your dad um what's going on here <laughs> like I can't believe you didn't invite him <sighs> so it became a bit of a whole a whole thing because I'd kind of taken that away from him um but at the same time like my parents uh, can't be in the same room together legally <laughs> so <laughs> have you talked to him about it uh, or has he ever brought it up no, I, not that I can remember, although we know Maria is a, an extremely unreliable narrator. Um, I think I just said something like, I didn't think you'd want to come. And he was like, I would have loved to have come. And I was like, oh, sorry, but I picked my favourite parent though. <laughs> like, so bad. But I, yeah, I took, the, I took that moment away from him as well. Um, and now he tells people that, because I work in the legal sector, he tells people that I'm a lawyer. And I'm like, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I'm not a lawyer, Dad. <laughs> you really have no idea, do you? <laughs> but that, like, the the education passport is real. It is really real. And that was the whole thing growing up with my parents. Like, um, most of my dad's family also immigrated after us, except for his one sister. So all of my cousins um, from my dad's side immigrated, but none of my mum's side. And a lot of my... Cousins are quite a bit older than me um, and my sister. So we took kind of different paths. And my parents were all about education, 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 not about going to do hobbies, not about playing at people's houses and things like that. They're like, you have to get your education. Your Education is your passport forward in this world. And I think particularly for my dad who's – highly intelligent and really wanted to do lots of things with his education but wasn't able to do a lot of the things that he wanted to do. He wanted um, my sister and I to have those opportunities. And I remember, and I tell him this, but he does not believe me or does not recall, I remember being in primary school and I got good grades because I was smart. Smarts, you know, evolved and disappeared sometimes. But, you know, he said, oh, if you don't get good grades, you're going to have to pay back your school fees. And I remember... Being in primary school, thinking, oh, I don't show really, really well this year. How am I going to pay back my school fees? 
how am I going to get a job? I'm like 12. I don't think you can get a job until you're like 13 and a half or 14 and a half. And where am I going to get the money? And they don't really give us pocket money because they don't believe in it. But And even if they did, they don't give us much. I'm like, how am I going to pay my school fees back? Oh, my God. But, like, this is also the same man that now <laughs> – so last Sunday I was quite hungover. Haven't been out for a while. Went out and my mum had um, made Cook Sisters, which is the South African traditional donut on, on Sunday – and they were like, you're going to come around and come pick yours up. We've got some for you. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm just a bit tired. They're like, oh, is your heart a painting? Which is, is your hair t- is your hair hurting? Which is like another way of describing a hangover. And I was like, yeah, just a little bit. So I'm just going to lay low today and I'll see if I come around later or maybe not. And they're like, oh, don't worry, don't worry. We'll work something out if you don't come. And then Monday morning, I had a really busy day and at 10 to 9, my dad rocks up with coffee and my donuts and he's like, I know you've got a busy day and you couldn't come yesterday. So here, have a good day. And I'm like, oh my God, from the man that used to say, you've got to pay your school fees back. He's like bringing, you know, his grown-ass daughter who works, who had a hangover and couldn't pick up her donuts, coffee and donuts on a Monday morning to start her week. And I was like... This is love. This is parents that are proud of you. <laughs> Bring you coffee and donuts on a Monday. Oh, my gosh. That's so sweet. Can you tell us what the traditional donuts actually like? Because I have no idea. Oh, so Cook Sisters. Essentially, it's made from like a potato-based dough. And then you put spices like aniseed and cinnamon and different things into the dough. Um, you let it rise twice and all that sort of stuff. You fry them off. Then you put them in a sugar syrup. And then you roll them in coconut. They are delicious. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wow. Why are they called Cook Sisters? What's the – do you know? I don't know because I don't speak Afrikaans, but Cook is – I think Cook and Sisters is – Sisters? I don't know. That is something I might have – you could Google that. (laughs) I really don't know. Interesting. I don't speak Afrikaans. No, I'm, I'm not even pronouncing it properly. My Afrikaans accent or South African accent is terrible. How do you feel about not being able to speak Afrikaans? Um, there was a time when I was, I think the second time I went back to South Africa in my 20s, I was, was I living in Japan at the time? I think I may have been. Or... Yeah, I think I was living in Japan at the time. I was, yeah, I was independent enough to sort of be able to quit jobs and do things. And I went with my parents because I only ever go back to South Africa with my parents because I don't speak Afrikaans and it feels a little bit dangerous and unfamiliar um, because people expect me to speak Afrikaans because I look like I should and as I, yeah, because I look like I belong, but I don't carry myself in the same way. And people, like I remember going to, South Africa to go to this wedding um, with my parents and there was a woman sitting next to me speaking to me Afrikaans and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not sure what you're saying, you know, I, I don't really speak Afrikaans and she thought I was full of it myself so she turned to my mum because she didn't realise my mum was my mum and she's like, check out this one, I think she's so good, won't even speak Afrikaans to me and just wasn't wants me to speak English <laughs> and my mum was like, that's my daughter, we never taught them Afrikaans and then she was like, oh... Sorry. Um, oh, we just thought she was full of herself. <laughs> I was like, well, yes, I'm a bit confident and I you know, know how to carry myself. But I would speak to you. I'm like, can you speak Japanese? Like I can speak to you in fluent Japanese. But but that was that trip that I really felt I wanted to get connected with my heritage because I speak this whole other language which 
is outwardly nothing connected to me, but I feel very deeply connected to um, Japan. But people in Japan, because there's families there that adopted me like I was their own daughter. Um, and I've got best friends and I've got godchildren and I had some amazing workplaces. And then I was like, oh, I'm so connected to this country that I didn't know existed for most of my life. Whereas the country of my birth, I feel really no connection to in many ways. So I was like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move to South Africa. And I'm going to, I think I got, got a book from someone to try and self-teach myself Afrikaans, which is really hard to pronounce words with German and Dutch influence. And I can't, yep, I can't do it. Yep. And, but I was really de- well, I was determined for like five minutes, but I was determined in those five minutes <laughs> to do that. But then I was thinking about, okay, yep, the best way to do it would be to finish in Japan and then move to South Africa and immerse myself mm. in the culture and the country because that's how I know I will learn um, and engage the best. But then I thought, well, who who am I to do that and what opportunities am I taking away from someone else who lives in South Africa and grew up in South Africa and is also doing all the things that they need to do to further themselves for me to be like, oh, I just grew up over here and I've got all these other qualifications. I'm going to come in and take a job from you. And I was like, well, that's not really what I want to do because I want to learn and I could probably learn anywhere or in any way. Um, And yes, it might not happen as fast or as quickly or it might drop off completely, which is what had actually happened. Um, But I really didn't want to take an opportunity from someone else who lives and works and grew up in South Africa away from them because I was like, that's not not cool. That's not equality. That's not equity. And so I didn't quit my job. I stayed in Japan. And I still don't speak Afrikaans. Although I did try and teach myself a little bit. Now I'm trying to learn Spanish, Afrikaans. I've got to find that book. But... This podcast and having to come over here and like the conversation I had with my parents on the drive over about, so where's mom and pa come from and where did papa and mamaki come from and where did their parents come from has kind of inspired me to go, actually, let's figure out our heritage and our history because no one ever looked at it. No one really engaged with it. And like, you know, mum was like, we were farm. My father was farmers and, you know, their their parents were farmers and dad's like, they were slaves. They were farm workers. And his mum's like, oh, you know. And it's so it's like, and you didn't, in South Africa, no one looked up their history. No one documented things and stuff like that. It's very different. So I'm kind of interested in being like, oh, maybe I'll restart some of that work and that journey and trying to figure out where we come from. Because the other thing I was saying to my mum on the way here, I'm like, mum, where did your freckles come from? She has a full freckle face and it is cute and it is delightful. I think she's hated them when she was growing up. But I'm like, freckles, where do freckles come from on black people? They're just not not usual mm. and we have no idea. Secrets, secret secrets, freckles. mystery freckles. freckles, mystery freckles. So we, she's like, I have no freckle idea. <laughs> <laughs> the other layer in that is that in my dad's side, like my mater- my paternal grandparents, my grandmother's white. So, um, and my dad's grandfather, no, not grandfather, my dad's father is not. And so that was the, the main conversation we were having in the car driving up because they got together before apartheid. Oh. Yeah. My dad's mother, Ma, who made it to the ripe old age of 103 and a half. Wow. She was an incredible woman. 
She, her mother was born in England and her last name was Frost. Grandma, my dad's like Grandma Frost. Um, and her father was born in Germany and he was Grandpa Rorick. Not that I've met him and I don't think my dad, my dad didn't ever met him. He died before they met. And um, so Grandma Frost came to South Africa with her father and I think her father was brought over to drive trains and then Grandpa Rorick was a postman. And, you know, they grew up and they had a number of um, children and things like that. And I think my grandfather, like, and I don't know this story really well, and this is a story I probably should have asked again. I remember it like my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary, like my grandpa telling this story, and I'm going to get it wrong, so I apologise to any of my family who actually end up listening or find this podcast somewhere. He used to say that he used to watch my grandmother walk past the house or something and he was like, I'm going to marry her when, like, from when he was like grade three. You know, could be a stalker, but, you know, what we know now. <laughs> um, and, yeah, and they they got together at some stage. I did not know that the other parts of their origin, origin story. But because they've got that dynamic, that also is another layer for my parents. So some of my dad's siblings are probably a bit more white passing, although I'm not sure they would like me to say that. But, you know, some of the kids all went to different schools and things like that they could get into and things like that. So Because quite, of their skin colour? Because they could go to different schools, yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, again, I might be taking liberties but with, with my understanding of the stories and the history because they don't really talk about it. But, you know, because of that elements of white privilege in my parents' family, in my dad's family in particular, they lived in different suburbs. I think there's... I'm not sure if it was my grandmother or an auntie or somewhere on my grandmother's side that they wanted to build a shopping centre in an area and they sold out and bought out all their people that were non-white but her, she didn't want to leave. White person, they had to wait till she died before they could take over that property and build the shopping centre and things like that. So there's a really interesting dynamic and like my grandmother, bless her soul, was a little bit racist too and I'm like, have you seen the colour of your son's? Have you seen the colour of your husband? You know. Um, oh, that's but, not a get out of jail free card, having a No. <laughs> Look, I forgive her some of her, <laughs> her, you know, interesting ideas. But, you know, she had a whole lifetime of trauma and other interesting experiences as well. How did they stay married? Wasn't it illegal for them to be together? Um, I think that was, but then they just stayed in coloured areas, right? And she was more, she sort of, I guess, lost the whiteness and her other, you know, siblings were in different areas. And I think some of them didn't talk to her for a while and sort of there's some fractured relationships there. Um, And then when my parents moved here, although she'd been out to Australia on a boat before that, I think, um, her and my grandfather immigrated here as well. So they spent their retirement years in Australia. So was your dad raised to think of himself as coloured? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we are very similar in looks. Okay. Yeah. And what about your mum's side of the family? What's the the history there? They're coloured as well. Like I was just talking to mum again, also in this telephone, in this car ride home, over. Um, Again, we don't know much um, about her family either. Um, Definitely probably slaves um, back in the day. And I think on my maternal grandfather's side, they were, um, I'm saying koi koi, 
but I don't know what Khoi Khoi necessarily is, but it's a group of people in South Africa. I think that's the heritage who were not seafarers, but they were along the beaches and looked out along the beaches around different things. But I think with my um, maternal grandfather, his family pretty much, I think there was 10 of them or so, pretty much all of them died with the Spanish flu. So then he was raised by family that wasn't family, but took took them on as family. But my mum's mum, yeah, I'm not sure. We were sort of talking before. We were like, maybe we're part of Filipino slave. There's just so many slave trades from different parts of Africa and different countries. And I'm like, yeah, and the freckles, like where are they coming from? And a lot of people actually do think my mum is Filipino sometimes, but we actually don't know. But I'm really curious because one year I went to Fiji with my sister and I was going around and I was like, does everyone not look like mum or her sister in Fiji? And like we'd, we'd be out and I'm like, that is literally Auntie Myrtle. <laughs> I was like, what is happening? And so I called mum and I was like, mum, you need to come to Fiji one day because maybe we're, we're Fijian. Like there's some Fijian history because a lot of people here look like you. And like I literally have seen your sister a number of times. Like the other thing, I guess, with the the different um, DNA passing down, my sister's very fair compared to me, you know, and she also doesn't like the sun so much, but whereas I love it. But, yeah, so she's got a lot of my grandmother's genes, whereas yeah. I've got probably more of my grandfather's genes. So she's quite fair. I mean, she tans and all that sort of stuff when she goes out in the sun. But, yeah, she's really, really quite fair compared to my complexion. What do you get? Where do people think you're from? I once got an old man saying, you're Chinese. But I lived across the road from a retirement village growing up. I just think you didn't have very good eyesight. <laughs> people don't know where I'm from. People often think I'm American or English because I don't have an accent. They just don't know where to place. And I don't always have like I'm embracing the fro, which is something new because my mum is like, your hair is a bit wild because you're always with detainment. And blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. But um, so I don't think I've really – people don't know really where to place me necessarily. Like when I was very little – and I, my first day of primary school, my name was Abby and people called me A-B-O. And I thought, oh, they know my name, but they're just not saying it right. Oh. And when my mum was just like, you are not going to this school another day and literally took me like first day of primary school, like the primary school that you could see it from our house. It was like, nope. Go, go mum. You'll go to a different school a little bit further away. Go, mum. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, Ooh. exactly. So it's it's quite quite full on. But yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know what people think. In Japan, when I lived in Japan, it became very apparent that I needed to define my identity in a way that I'd never been asked to because people were like, "Where are you from?" like Australia. But where are you from? Melbourne? <laughs> where in Melbourne? No. Where are you from? Well, I grew up in Dandenong and Fountain Gate and Willis Hill. No, no, no. Where are you really from? <sighs> we all know that question. I was like, yeah. well, I was born in South Africa. Ah, oh, so you're South African. I'm like, yes, but I've really been raised in Australia. And if we go back to the beginning of the conversation where my parents were like, you're Australian, you're Australian, you're Australian. 
to me, I was like, that's a weird freaking question to ask me because I didn't really I, like as much as I identify with a lot of Australian things, I don't identify with Australian, but I am Australian. And then so people questioning me where I was from, I was like, how? Why are you asking me these questions? I am just me. And because the Australia I grew up in, mm. particularly in the locations, was very multicultural. So yeah. I was like, my Australian is all countries, all colours, all languages. And then being in Japan, which is a very homogenous society, but curious sometimes, they just couldn't get it. They're like, but you're not the blonde girl from where the bloody hell are you? You know, so that was that was also, I think, an interesting space to engage in. And then also when I was living in Japan, I went on um, a program called the JET program, which was an um, English language teaching program run by the Japanese government. So they had um, graduates from around the world coming in to work in Japan and sit within local boards of education and to support the English language teaching in the schools around the area. And so it's not volunteerism like you do in South Africa because you had to have a degree and um, I ended up getting a teaching qualification as well before I went over and you were an assistant language teacher and you got paid um, pretty well and stuff like that at the time. Um, and I remember being at the conference when you arrived because there's massive conferences, like hundreds of people come at the one time. They bring everyone together from around the world and there's different groups that are established from people that are already there and they help run the conferences and um, get everybody established. And there was a guy that gave me this um, this pamphlet that was like, come to this session about being black um, in Japan. And I took it and I was like, why are they giving this to me? I'm not African-American. I don't need to – I'm not part of this. I'm like, I was so insulted because I wasn't really understanding who I was and where I came from mm. and I don't think I realised I was black in a weird way. Yeah. Now I kind of get it and I did have a boyfriend there at the time who described me to his friend like she's black but she doesn't really know it. I was like, who is this whitey telling me these things? But now I kind of get it. She's black but she doesn't really know it. Excuse me. <laughs> How, how did you realize you were black? Um, I don't know. It wasn't when I was in Japan, that's for sure. I was very good at blending in or trying. Or no, probably wasn't very good at blending I was in. Just about to I say was not Abby. very good at blending in at all. That is that is incorrect. Or no, <laughs> making myself believe that I was blending in by being the model immigrant in Japan by speaking super fluent Japanese to the point where if I answered the phone at the – because I ended up staying on and um, – or going back to Japan after I finished with the JET program and working in a Japanese law firm. And every now and again, answered the phone with such Jap- good Japanese that clients would then go on to their spiel about their legal problems and who they wanted to talk to. And then I'd be like, oh, uh, uh, actually, hang on, slow down. Yep, I am just the English-speaking paralegal. I'll just get Mr. Matsuo for you. Because I sounded like Japanese people. They didn't – no one knew until they met me. They're like, oh, you speak Japanese? And then that made me think I was blending in. Mm. But I wasn't. I think I probably really – it's really interesting. It's probably only in the last few years I've started looking and thinking and embracing that difference because there's been something missing. And I remember I think when I was working a couple of years ago, um, someone said to me like, oh, follow this. Um, group on Facebook called Afropunk, which is about music 
um, and stuff. But she's like, follow up for the Afro of the day. <laughs> and it was another woman of color. And I was like, yeah, okay. And so I, um, I started following um, this page and started seeing different Afros. But it just changed my Facebook feed. And I started seeing different faces and different standards of beauty and different things that I didn't even realize I was missing or I hadn't been seeing. Um, and so I think from starting to see that more often, I decided to stop straightening my hair and I cut it really short and I shaved sort of the back of it and made it kind of this coiffed swoop on the side. And I started exploring what my hair texture did and things. I was still straightening it a lot, like blow drying, but I started seeing different standards of beauty, things that I could aspire to that looked like me as opposed to everything else that I see on a daily basis on television, out in the street, in magazines, which I was trying to weirdly like on the one hand aspire to but also push back on because I was like that actually doesn't look nice to me or it doesn't excite me. Um, I like the colourful thing. I like this one that looks a bit different. I like this one that has different shapes and has more dynamicism for me. And I think starting to invite different um, views and visions and images I've started to realise what I'd been missing and then started to try and cultivate that more and then explore what I liked instead of being trying to become a carbon copy of something that I could never aspire to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because white, straight hair, skinny, no boobs, no butt, nothing. Like, it, it, that is just – that's not something that I am. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's dangerous, though, that, like, rep- representation and, and curating your – what you see, um, like through Instagram or Facebook or whatever, is really important to reflect your identity, I guess. Yes, and to help you discover your identity and what might be missing because you don't always know what it is. There's just this feeling Mm. and you don't know this feeling and you don't know where it comes from or what it means or why it exists until you start seeing things differently. Like the other thing is too, like I realised a number of years ago I was um, involved with an organisation called Incubate um, and it was started by a woman that I know, Ziona Walker and her husband, around um, creating spaces for African youth because I think it was around the times there was all the African gang stuff and um, Zona and her husband are an incredible couple, um, both lawyers, really, really successful. They do incredible work um, in the community and beyond. And they were like, we are surrounded by a number of people from all parts of Africa and all, and we're professional, we do incredible work, but we don't see that. We don't see ourselves reflected in positive ways in the news, in the media, um, and where does it leave our kids? We're only seeing these um, headline-grabbing news items and that's what people then associate whole groups of people and whole countries of people with. Mm -hmm. So they started Incubate to try and um, create different spaces for people to connect and particularly youth as well to connect with other professionals and see how we can create a network of, um, I guess, just good people to help link people up, you know, for for their future. And so they had um, an African youth conference. Oh, a number of years ago, and I think it, we held it at KPMG, and there were lots of um, First Nations kids that came, kids from Māori backgrounds and kids from other immigrant backgrounds as well that were like, oh, this is a space for us. And, like, 
because they were like, yes, it's an African youth conscious, but we're anyone that wants to come and engage. And I remember running workshops during that and I was really relaxed and I didn't realize I was really relaxed, but it was just great to be surrounded by a whole lot of people that kind of looked like me, felt like me. I didn't have to explain things. I could understand things. I was getting educated. I was like, I found out how colonized I was from some of the youth during those conversations and I was like, oh, okay, I'm running the – oh, yeah, you're schooling me big time. Okay, I need to go back. <laughs> I need to go back and learn. Um, but I really didn't realise how relaxed and how comfortable and how much represented representation mattered until I stepped out onto Collins Street when it was done and I looked around and I all of a sudden I took this deep breath and like all this attention entered into my body but then – my back went straight and I was like lifted my head up and I'm like, oh, oh, I was really relaxed. I haven't been that relaxed very often in my life. And, oh, this tension, which I feel like is confidence, is actually a shield and a protective mechanism that I steal myself for the world. Because I then looked around and was like, where's all the brown people? And I was like, there's none. <laughs> and I'm like, but then where did all those ones come from that I just left this conference from? And so I was just like, oh, I'm – didn't realise how much tension and stress you're holding on a daily basis and how much you hold your breath all the time when you're trying to just exist yep. in this world. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I feel so much it, – it's fascinating. So in Melbourne, in the legal district, mm. I feel – so uncomfortable like by all the hustling and bustling and it just feels like a space everybody's in suits everybody's white majority people are white and because I guess my first um, legal job was based in that area I didn't realize how much just being there makes me feel sick until I wasn't in that space and I wasn't spending every day there. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God. I was exactly like you described. I was holding so much tension and I was – and in so many ways was diminishing myself to fit into that space. And because of all of my imposter syndrome about who I am in the world – I wasn't expressing fully yeah. Ka- who Kate is because I didn't want to stand out in that space because I already felt different enough. Yeah, and also that those spaces and that system demand certain things. Like if you think about um, some of the rules about mm. women not showing their arms and things in um, certain jurisdictions, you're like, well, if you can't even show arms as a woman and, you know, there's an expectation of stockings and skirts and stuff – then how can any other thing that's different um, be accepted at all? And, you know, yeah, I I got my first legal job in um, the same sort of arena and I remember when they started doing separate lines for public and for lawyers and police to go into the courts, particularly at the magistrate's court, the number of days they'd be like, go to the public line. And I'm like, no, I'm the lawyer. They're like, no, go to the – I'm like, I'm the lawyer. And I'd like, I remembered I probably dressed even more professional. I wore my fancier, more expensive heels. And like, I'd be walking there and I just like, don't make eye contact, just push through and like you belong. But I'm like, I do belong. I'm supposed to be here. If I don't get through those gates, 
the courts are going to run late because I'm not going to be able to do my job and you are making judgments and assumptions about where I belong. You're saying I should be there. It used to get me so freaking mad and it happens so often. Yeah. It still does. Yeah. It yeah. still does. And those – the knee-jerk reactions, um, like I would wear – I would also wear really fancy clothes when I would when I was going to court. Even, I'm not a lawyer, but um, as a as like legal support staff, I would wear really really fancy clothes so that I wouldn't be identified as a client. And that's something that I've come up with come up against a lot, especially when I moved into working in criminal law. I was like, I actually have more in common with the clients than I do with my colleagues. Same. And when I actually made it, you know, through the gates and onto the sixth floor. And clients would walk in and you would see them visibly relax when they saw me and you could almost see going, oh, okay, I'm not going to have to explain a whole lot of other stuff and this person's going to understand me a bit better. And sometimes I wouldn't and then sometimes I wouldn't because I'm so trained in not um, understanding or accepting the variance and the differences in people's actual lives and the framing of the law and the framing of what is right is white, mm-hmm. um, meant that I disappointed clients sometimes and I disappointed myself even though I thought I was doing the right thing because the systems and the structures are defined in such a way that you have to dismantle a person's identity and everything that hold they hold dear to try and fit in or get them through this process intact. But the intact, and I'm using air quotes, um, here is an intact for the ideas of what the system represents not intact for the person and their own um, individual personal feelings and families. Tell us a little bit more about your hair journey because I'm fascinated. Oh, the hair journey. Um, so always straightened my hair, blow dried my hair or put it in rollers, curlers back in the day when we were little, it's it's a big thing, um, when we were little, um, and then also before, well, when we were even littler, I probably had two pigtails with plaits for many more years than was probably appropriate. I think if I was a 10 year old these days, they'd be like, uh, you freaking weirdo, why are you dressed like a baby? Um, but it wasn't so bad back when I was little, but it was, you know, anything to keep it controlled and in place and all those sorts of things. Cause you had to have your hair neat and tidy at schools. There was, you know, guidelines, there still are. And also my mum and dad, you know, like to get my mum in particular, like to keep your hair. Does your mum have a fro? No. Okay. What no. about your dad and your sister? Dad has really curly hair. My sister's hair is straighter than mine. Not as curly as mine. Um, so lots of plaits and lots of, you know, slicked back, very represented, not wild hair. The hair couldn't be wild. Can't have wild hair. Um, but then also when I was growing up, fringes were really in, like those teased fringes in the front. <laughs> and, yeah, my hair was curly, but I also thought, oh, I'm just like everybody else. So I once cut my own fringe. Not, I do not recommend it. Oh, no. Not with curly hair. Um, and not when you couldn't use products or you didn't have the right products at all. Because you were a baby. <laughs> yeah, because you were little and you were like, you know, going through that awkward 13, 14-year-old stage anyway. So let's just make it even more awkward. So it's just like this firework 
at the front of my hair that really looked weird. And I was real tall back then. I played basketball. Yeah, it was just not a good look. So I just, you know, kept on tying it back. I tied my hair back a lot. Pulled it back out of my face. And so it didn't matter if I had long hair or short hair, but I always had long hair because I didn't do anything with it. But I tied in a bun mm. all the time because that was the easiest way to do it. It wasn't wild. Everything was slicked back. Everything was controlled and neat and presentable. And then, um, oh, in my 20s, I guess, I was going overseas to reunite with someone and I was like, I want to be a different person when they see me. Um, so I was in San Francisco um, catching up with a good friend and I was like, was it Nat- yeah, Natalie, and I was like, she was living in San Francisco, another Australian girl. And I was like, oh, I need to get my hair cut. I want to see my, I get my hair cut before we, we I meet up. And she's like, okay. You know, she's a white girl. She's like, let's go to this place. And I went there. It was one of these big salons. I don't really like was my second trip to America, but I didn't really know how their hair worked. And this um, Caucasian girl um, called Precious was the one allocated to do my hair. And I was like, oh, wow. And then she's like, oh, no, I love your hair. I can totally do it. And I was like, I'm looking for something short. I want to sort of have shorter hair. I want to do something different with it. I didn't really know what I wanted, but I wanted to cut it off. Um, and so Precious like took my hair out and she wet it a bit and she did some stuff and just to see what the texture was. She actually knew what she was doing. At the time I did not believe because I didn't know what was possible mm. with my hair at all. And so she washed it. Then she actually, yeah, she washed it. She cut a whole lot of it off like in one foul sweep. And I was like, <gasps> what have I done? I can't undo this. It takes my hair forever to grow. Or so I thought. Um, And she cut it all off and then she dried it and picked it out into this massive afro. And I was like sitting there going, what is she doing? What is she doing? Then she cut it into this sort of halo kind of circle that was sort of shorter at the bottoms and then bigger at the top. And then I'm like, "What? what? This is not the look. I don't know what's happening. But I also didn't know what else she could do with it or what I could do to salvage it because I – had no idea. And then she washed it again. Then she put product in and then she finger curled it curl by curl all around my head and then created these really cute curls. And I was like, oh, did not know my hair could do this. This is cute. This is cool. This is funky. And she really sort of showed me that my hair could do something that I had no idea. And I probably would never have known and my mum wouldn't have necessarily known either and probably would not have found – I don't think anyone in Australia or Melbourne, I think, very easily that could do that as well. So that was the first time to sort of cut my hair short and um, learn it can curl and do different things. Precious. 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 Come through. Precious with, yeah, yeah, she really did. <laughs> Thank God. Because now thinking back, if she didn't, I'm like, I don't know what I would have done. Did you look in the mirror and you're like, is that what my hair is supposed to look like? Yeah, and like there was these older women around me like looking at me adoringly with the afro going, oh my God, look at her, I love it. Oh. I'm like, mm, go away. I don't know you. I don't love it. This is not the era. That might have been your era. This is not mine. <laughs> and so that that was the first row. And then I grew it out long again because then I came back to Australia and I did my law degree and then I had to be presentable and I had like a bob with blow-dried straight hair all the time and then – 
again, I wanted a change. I just wanted something different. I was seeing different things through my social media and I was like, oh, I tie my hair up all the time because it's quicker and it's easier. And so I thought, why don't I just cut it short? Because lots of people are like, are like oh, short hair doesn't suit everyone because, you know, they have their hair covering their face. I'm like, my hair is away from my face all the time. So I think my face is okay. So let's just style the hair a little bit differently. And so I was looking up <laughs> short haircuts for black women, cool black women's short hair, funky haircut for black hair. Um, and then I was like saving all these photos and like Mary J. Blige had that sort of half-shaved look and yes, all those sorts yes, of things. Yes, yes. <laughs> With the blonde and I was like, that, I think I can do, I think I can do that. And so then I um went to my hairdresser who was like the hairdresser from when I was little who ended up being opening a salon down the road from where I live now and was like, oh, I kind of want to cut my hair and I showed him the different pictures um, and let him go. And then when he started, got out the clippers and shaved half my hair off from the side, I was like, oh, oh, what am I going to do with this? How is this going to work? But it was really freaking cool. And it was a really funky haircut that I had for five or six years. And it was really, really nice. And now lockdown has, and COVID, as crap as it could, has been, it was the perfect time to grow out half a shaved head <laughs> because I wore headbands at work. Um, you can just do that background blurring thing and no one needs to turn around and see these different lengths and different sides and different directions that your hair is growing. And so I was like, oh, thank you because I don't think I would have done it otherwise. And now I'm trying to like explore and see how long it gets and how the curls work and which way I can pin it for the fro. But then if I'm going to end the movies and stuff, I'm like, oh, I can't wear a fro. I'm going to block someone's view. <laughs> Take up space, Abby. <laughs> I know, but I'm so used to trying not to. <laughs> I know. It's very contradictory, isn't it? It is. But I am loving the curls. I think it was quite funny the second time I cut my hair. I thought it was really cool. And my mum was like, oh, oh, as long as you like it. And, and, and that is the most classic Passag mum comment that has ever existed. And, and and it'll grow back and you know, you know, can do different things and you know, it'll it'll grow out. But then she grew to love it. Oh. Full circle moment. So have they talked to you much about what it was like coming from South Africa to Australia? Nope. Wow. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. Keep yeah. it secret. Oh, well, yeah, because I think that they've just got a lot of things that they have not had the space to deal with, right? So, you know, as I've grown up, I understand that they're in survival mode a lot of the times. And so ideas of exploration and self-reflection seem indulgent but it's because I don't have to worry about survival like they did. I don't have to worry about how I'm going to feed and clothe two little children in a new country with no supports and just each other, you know. So I'm, whereas I'm like, I'm going to go dancing and do a massage and sit here and think about life for a while, whereas they never had the opportunity to do that because they just had to exist and live and survive and keep moving forward and being successful and making this huge choice a success 
at any cost. So they don't they don't talk about it. They might talk about it to each other. But I think over the last few years, like the dinner table conversations have changed and the um, shift, like I think my dad used to call me a bit of bleeding heart when I was, you know, wanting to work in community legal sectors and stuff. And he'd be like, no, work in the commercial firms, use your Japanese, all this sort of stuff. And I was like, well, yeah, but it's not where my gut sits and where my heart sits. But now I think he's like, yeah, you should be sticking it to them. Right, do this, do that. And getting a bit more excited because he feels safer because he knows that I feel safer. And we are like, that's what I think is the system. Like, oh, you've got an ongoing contract. Okay, you are set. You, you're you in a safe space. So now you can do this other work, you know, and agit, like I applied to go on the um, Victorian Anti-Racism Task Force. I wasn't successful, but I told them about that I was doing that. And at first they'd always used to be like, don't make waves. One of the favourite sayings, don't make waves, just, you know, get through, don't speak too loud, don't speak up, even though they want you to, but they don't because it wasn't stable. But now they're like, oh, good, good, Abby, good you're doing that. Oh, yes, we should be talking about, oh, what's that person doing? And look at, oh, it's the first, you know, American female vice president that's not, which usually before my parents would be like, oh, American politics don't care. But it is so important and so representative for all of us. Like when Barack Obama like, got elected, I cried. I was like, I'm not even interested in Australian politics, but I'm bawling my ass out of American politics. Same with um, Kalina Harris. I'm like, oh, my God, yes, yes. Both biracial, by the yeah, way. exactly, mm. exactly. And I'm just like, oh, I can't find that representation or that connection where I live. So I, in this global society, I'm finding it elsewhere and I'm taking it now. How do your parents grapple with Australia's fucked colonial history given that they, oh, I don't know, something that's a thread that's come out from a lot of interviews that we've had is that just this like immigrant narrative of being so grateful to be in Australia <laughs> and it, so it sits hard. It's like, yeah, I don't know that I can answer it in any specific way but I can give you this as an example. So um, my parents are still friends with lots of other families that immigrated on the same plane and stuff with them um, and other, you know, South African, coloured South African families who they met when they were first here. And growing up when we were sort of able to have more parties and things like that, there was like there used to be South African dances and I feel like at my mum's, my mum and my dad's birthday is one of their milestone birthdays and it was a milestone birthday that, you know, my sister and I could still have friends at. And one of the last songs most of my parents' friends and stuff played, which I never thought was weird because it was just normal at functions, was I Still Call Australia Home was the last song that they played. And my other friends from other backgrounds and stuff were like, that's really weird. And they stand in a circle and they sway and they sing it. And I just thought it was kind of normal. But I think that's that's their connection to Australia because, yes, South Africa is their home and their history and they probably didn't necessarily want to leave it, but it also wasn't offering them what they needed and what they could see as their potential. And so as a group and a community, even though they came over separately and, you know, they've had different paths to um, some of their friends and acquaintances, there's this other connection that – this is our home too. We've made it our home and it is 
something that's sustaining us and enabling us to have something that we probably weren't able to have um, where we were born. And it can be, you can look at it one way and be like, that's a little bit weird and not so cool. But in another way, I think it's actually a really nice way because it's really meant that because they've been fully trying to immerse themselves they still really were like, you're Australian, this is who you are, this is the community that you're going to be part of and you are going to belong and you will be um, accepted. And to do that, we have to accept ourselves and want to belong to this community and that song kind of represented it for them. Growing up, did you feel like you belonged? I'm pulling a really big face. Um... Oh, where? Yeah. I don't know how to answer this because in – yes, okay. So, yes, I felt I belonged um, in family and in that extended family space from non-biological aunts and aunties and cousins and stuff who all had the same immigration experience. But what I'm learning about myself now – or no, not learning, understanding about myself now, is that I took that belonging for granted and rejected it and pushed it at arm's length and kept it at arm's length and I strive for belonging in other white spaces and also multicultural mixed but predominantly white spaces where I think I belong sometimes genuinely and then other times I just was trying to force myself to fit into square peg round hole type thing. And so, yeah, the belonging, you know, piece, I feel like there's always been spaces where I've belonged but I haven't – I've just taken them f- for granted and I'm trying to come back to to recognising the value in that because if I didn't have those spaces and those places and those people in my lives supporting me quietly – and from afar, I would not be where I am now. Is there anything else that you wanted to chat to us before we finish up the podcast? No, I just like to say thank you. This has been the thing that I never knew I needed. Oh, didn't. Yeah, it's been incredible. And can I do it again? When can we hang out again? <laughs> I want to talk more. I want to hang out and learn from you guys and work with you guys. This has been really freaking cool. Thank you. Oh, you. Thank you so much for listening to Being Biracial. This podcast is hosted, edited, produced, all of the other things by us, Kate Robinson and Maria Birch-Moronga. Just two women out here making a podcast. Music is by the Green Twins and the song that you're listening to right now is Take It Slow. This work is developed with the support of Footscray Community Arts through the generous use of their podcast studio here on the lands of the Cortland Nation. Being Biracial is also supported through Maribyrnong City Council Community Grants Program and the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria. We also want to thank Auspicious Arts for all of their help. We love hearing from you. You can find us on Instagram at Being Biracial Podcast or send us an email at beingbiracialpodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could leave us a review. That is one of the best ways to support us. And if you liked this episode and you like our podcast, why not subscribe? Bye. Bye.